Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Christian Finnegan co-stars in a new show on A&E with Shrod Small called Black and White, where over the course of the first eight episodes, they'll deconstruct today's headlines through the humorous prism of race relations. Finnegan and Small cracked wise about less serious matters for years as part of VH1's Best Week Ever. Christian talks to me about finding his way into stand-up comedy, how Jim Gaffigan provided him with an early break. Finnegan, in fact, serves as a consultant and frequently guest stars on Gaffigan's new TV Land series. Perhaps Christian's earliest big break, though, came by appearing on Chappelle's show. And we also talk about how sometimes the career path we were looking for was right in front of us the whole time. So let's get to it! Christian Finnegan, thanks for being on Last Things First. Why, thank you for having me, Sean McCarthy. (laughs) So, Last Things First. When you were on uh, The Chappelle Show... Yes... As will be inscribed on my tombstone. <laughs> Were you thinking doing the real world uh, sketches that someday I'll have a show that talks about race? <laughs> um, and it won't be on Comedy Central. No. I, It'll I, be on a serious channel talking comedically about race. Yeah. It was not <laughs> something that occurred to me at the time, but it's funny how sometimes the feedback you get from other people kind of reveals things that have been themes in your life without you right. knowing it, you know? Um, cause you know, I, I did the Chappelle show and then a few years later, you know, I did, are we there yet? Which had nothing to do with each other. People always think that like, Oh, uh, Ali Leroy who cast me in, are we there yet? Uh, had never seen me on Chappelle show. <laughs> he just, he was looking through the comedy central comedian archives and just sort of finding, because he wanted a white comic to right. sort of be the friend, and he just ran, you know, was just kind of going through people, and then kind of called me in from that. And so, clearly, there is something about me that makes black people think, I want to see him interact with black people. <laughs> um, it's just something I, my quintessential whiteness coming through. Is that how you felt as a child in Massachusetts? Well, that's the thing. Did you feel the- very, did you feel like, stereotypically white? Or? No, I mean, because... Uh, I think that's one of the the learning experiences you have, especially once you move to New York and you spend some time, you know, uh, in the adult world, right. is that you grew up kind of thinking that white is normal and everything not white is something exotic or different. Do you, you know what I mean? That that you think uh, like white is not even to be acknowledged because it's just the standard. It's all you see. It's all you yeah. See. You know, and uh, in Tanahazi Coase's book Between the World and Me, uh, you know he. He constantly refers to uh, those who believe they are white. You know that that whiteness is a construct of that's only really existed for the past hundred years or so. Like if you had told somebody a hundred years ago, if you had told an Irish guy that an Italian guy that they were the same, they would have thought you were crazy. Do you, you know? You know what I mean? That it's like no, no, no. You're you're a gross Italian person. I'm a pure Irish person, or vice versa. That even played out with the immigration here in America. 
a century ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anti anti immigration against Irish. Exactly. Against it's it's only really been in the last you know few generations that people have started to think of like whiteness as being an, an overarching umbrella. You know, and it's funny you're even seeing it now with Brexit. You know, you're seeing all these British people who are complaining about the polls. I right. Mean, that's so bizarre. You know, <laughs> you know old what I mean? School. Like, that's I would old never, school. really? The Polish? That's still a thing that you're upset about that? You know, but it really is, you know. That's how old the British Empire is. <laughs> exactly. But, so, it's, um, it's, but then when I look back at my life, you know, when I was in college, I wrote a massive term paper, you know, a 15 page, uh, term paper on, uh, do the right thing and sweet, sweetback's badass revenge, the Melvin Van Peebles movie. And there were just all these little things over the course of my life where I seemed to have been interested in this and just didn't acknowledge it. Like, I didn't realize that it was something I was curious about. You know? Well, how did you pick Do the Right Thing as something to write about? Um, it was in a, it was in a film class. I don't, I don't honestly remember. Um, but I was con- comparing and contrasting, like, views of the black experience by black filmmakers and, whether one was, you know, more inherently, because people always think of, of Spike Lee now as being this sort of strident black voice. When Do the Right Thing came out, he got a lot of flack from the black community of sort of airing grievances in public, like gra- black grievances mm-hmm. in public. You know, if you look at Do the Right Thing now, all the characters are constantly telling all the other characters to go get a job, you know, and everybody, all anybody remembers is him throwing a trash can through the window and it being sort of an anti-white riot. But when you watch the movie, it's actually way more nuanced than that. And he, he kind of got in the same trouble with when Chirac came out last year, a lot of like Chance the Rapper and a bunch of black figureheads were saying like, hey, can you maybe not talk so badly about our culture? <laughs> you know, um, and I, I guess I understand that in the sense that when you are in a uh, marginalized community, mm-hmm. you kind of feel like, hey, don't give the white people more reasons to think we're violent or whatever, you know. But Well, I know from talking to you uh, before over the years that you started out, you were very into theater as a kid. So, Yes. So you knew that performance was going to be a part of your future. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you started out as an accountant or a lawyer, and then no, I have no no skills. I have no skills. Um, I'm sort of of my generation, overeducated, underskilled. But I, I knew pretty clearly that it was going to be something in the arts. Um, I didn't. For a while, I went to a performing arts high school and. I was a double major. We had majors in high school, and I was an acting major and a creative mm-hmm. writing major. And then when I went to college, I went as an actor just because I was, I had more experience doing it, and I felt like more secure. And then after about three semesters at NYU, I kind of hated it. Like I hated actors, and I hated that whole world. And so that's when I became a playwriting major and sort of got in directing and playwriting and stuff like that. And then after college, I went into publishing. But it's always, it's never been like a real. I've never, I've never thought to myself, I'm going to start a business, even though now with my wife, we sort of have, but, <laughs> but I, it's always been something arts related for right, sure. We're here. Uh, we're actually talking in the basement of QED, which yes, is, uh, the kill room. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like a kill room and saw in it, here? It did feel like walking into a trap, <laughs> uh, but this is the, uh, comedy venue slash performing arts plate space slash learning center mm-hmm. that you and your wife Cambry Cruz opened up a year and a half ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, about a year and a half ago. Um, I mean, it's, 
I help out where I can. I, it's our money. It's her place is sort of how I describe it to people. You know, I, when people ask me like, Oh, you're one of the owners. I'm like, no, Cambry's the mother. And I'm like the stepdad. Like I can take you to McDonald's and I can like babysit in a pinch, but I'm not like in charge. Well, even in, uh, in the episode of the Jim Gavigan show, second season that, uh, you appear in this week, uh, Jim is asking you to for help getting a spot at QD, and you're like, I I don't know if I can help you. I know that's such an absurd situation. <laughs> I I did some script consulting. Uh, I did yeah, you're it listed on, as a consultant. Yeah. In the credits. I mean, it's all uh, union rules and stuff like that. I did script consulting for them last season, and then I did it again this season. And that episode in particular, uh, what's called the list. They had an episode that they had written, Jim and Jeannie had written an episode together that was really ambitious, but it just didn't feel like it totally fit with the tone of the show. And so they ended up scrapping it and they, with a couple of other people, me being one of them, like we kind of all plotted through this episode. Um, and then we had this idea of like, oh, Jim should go out and do like a, one of those hipster rooms and feel really awkward. And Jeannie Gaffigan was like, we should do it at QED. And it was, I mean, it's great. I, I'm, I'm really thrilled about it. But I felt, you know, I didn't want to act like, hey, well, I just happen to have an alternative <laughs> performance space that you could film in. But it's been, it was really fun to kind of see all the, you know, uh, Hollywood trucks outside and, and, uh, all the hubbub for, you know, it's great for the space for sure. Uh, what is, what is being a, uh, script consultant? mean exactly i mean it, it's you go, it no, is a, jim and Jeannie, this isn't really true to your life <laughs> no it's more like a punch-up thing you know okay. uh we sat in the room for i was you know probably about four weeks or something like that and we went over the episodes and i gave just ideas of line edits or logic bumps you know i mean like oh well this didn't really make sense because earlier in the episode you said this and and mostly just kind of as a sounding board like sometimes you know they're you know, you hear all the time about couples that work together. They work together. Like, they really do hash this stuff out together. They're more of a team than anybody I've ever been around as in, as a, in terms of a married couple working together professionally. But, you know, th- there's, it's a battle sometimes, you know, because they each have a, they're very strong willed. And sometimes I would go in and like Jeannie, you know, would say, one of us thinks A and the other thinks B. What do you think? And, <laughs> I was worried, like, okay, who am I going to piss off right now? But that's the perfect way to do it because then I'm not. It's like taking the Pepsi challenge. Exactly. But then I don't, yeah, I don't feel like I'm being nudged in any one direction. I can give my genuine opinion and they can take it or leave it. Um, but yeah, I've known them for a long time. And I think mostly that, that Jeannie likes me is, is sort of the, the, the help there. Um, Jim was like the first person I ever featured for. And so I met them both, you know, on one weekend in 2002 okay. at the West Palm Improv. And uh, and so they've always been very helpful to me, and I'm a big believer in them. And so I'm, you know, feel very lucky about that. Well, that, that helps bring us back to you said when you got done with NYU, you were kind of done with all of it and went into publishing instead. Yeah, of, yeah, so- I I didn't. I thought I was going to be a writer. You know, I thought I was going to, I was doing some freelance journalism at the time and I took a job, you know, I bartended for about a year or so after college and then I took a job at a lit agency 
uh, as an, uh, you know, as an, uh, an assistant lit agent. And by that, I don't mean that I really did any agenting myself. I was the assistant to a lit agent. So I, I read through the slush pile, which is this sort of unsolicited submissions, you know, right, that, that pile up. seeing manuscripts upon manuscripts. Yeah. And the guy I worked for who was sort of a, an elder statesman in the industry, uh, but was, you know, an older guy and like his clients were you know, people like Ken Follett and stuff okay. like that. And so I got a lot of, you know, I'm a retired Air Force colonel and I've written a spy novel. And so that was a slog, certainly. And every once in a while you would find something that you really liked. But, you know, I was 23, 22, 23 years old. I don't necessarily know that my tastes dovetailed with my boss's taste. So, um, you know, I, it, it was, I thought that I will, I'll work in publishing during the day and then at night I'll be the great American novelist. And then I realized that I don't have the discipline to be a writer. And on some level, I miss performing. And so that's why stand-up, it was kind of more of a logical thing. It wasn't like I – and then it's kind of what I was saying before. You know, I started doing stand-up, and then I look back at my past. I was like, oh, I own stand-up albums. Like, I was into this stuff. It just didn't occur to me. So what was the first time where it did occur to you? Probably a week before I did it. I mean, that sounds weird, but mm-hmm. I – uh I was working at this lit agency and I was just unhappy. I would come home every night and I would play basketball and like, you know, I'd go to work and then I'd go home and play basketball on the local court terribly. And it was fun. Again, one of these things where all the kids that I played with were black and Latino. And when I was playing well, they would call me Larry Bird or Steve Kerr at the time. (laughs) And I was playing poorly. They'd call me white boy. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah. But I just was like, God, I just, I don't feel like I have anything that I'm excited about. And so I, Time Out New York had just debuted in New York. It was Time Out London had just started this new magazine, Time Out New York. And they had this listing section, which was way better than the Village Voice or anything like that. And so I would just kind of go to stuff. I went to a bunch of poetry slams. Like I, I went to the New York, New York a few times because I had written poetry in high school. Like maybe I'm a poet. Maybe that's my thing. And no. No. Uh, How no. long did it take you to figure that out? About 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I got up at two poetry slams, mm-hmm. but I wanted to get up and just read poems. And that was not the era in 96, 97. You know, it was, it was get up there and do the whole Russell Simmons deaf poetry jam. Right. There's a delivery to it. It's a performance. Absolutely. And I remember, oh, there's a cadence. There's a ne- talking like this <laughs> and feeling like, uh, that. yeah. And I remember one time you had like six Cat minutes or, s- yeah. Sorry. You had whatever, five or six minutes, and this girl read two poems, and in between the two, she said, All right, the next poem I'm going to read, um, the next poem I'm going to kick is, and it's like, Nope, nope, you just <laughs> let it go. You went to say kick, but you didn't say kick, you said read, and now you're a complete fraud. Um, and I think that's one of the things that also kind of led me to the inclusion of doing comedy because. I had just a really itchy trigger finger bullshit wise, you know, that, that my bullshit meter is very sensitive and I feel like the poetry world and also the improv world and is, they're not as, they're a little more genteel and they're not as prone to being like, Oh, fuck you, (laughs) you know? And, and so comedy is, is much more geared towards saying, okay, you're being full of shit right now. So where did time out? steer you to a comedy venue? Well, or? I went I went and saw 
I started going to see stuff. Like, not every night, probably two nights a week, I would go to see things. I went to see the original UCB do a sketch show. Okay. Um, you know, when it was still the four of them. And, uh, they didn't even have a space at the time. It was just, it was a solo arts group. And I went and, I went to some concerts, you know, and I thought maybe I'd get he- more heavily into like rock journalism and stuff like that. But I just, that just felt like I felt like I wasn't passing the cool test on that. I don't know why, because when looking back, I'm like, I was totally cool enough to do that. Or, you know, in the, in the sense That's that no one is cool. Yourself. Exactly. It, that has been a lot of my life too, is sort of projecting litmus tests where they don't actually exist. Like, that's, uh, I don't that's know. That's when you need to, uh, queue up Almost Famous and play, uh, Philip. Se- <laughs> yeah. Off you're right. You're right. Because <laughs> Lester Bang is going, oh, the episode. <laughs> I was just watching, just uh, apropos of nothing, I was watching Roadies. Oh, I've, I've tried to stay away from it. Boy, it really, cause I've been a, I've been a Cameron Crowe defender for years because I love Almost Famous so much. I love Say Anything. I love Singles. I love Jerry Maguire. That sort of happy, sad, kind of corny mix that he has, I've always been a fan of. But man, Roadies is really bad, and I, 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 I do wonder what Cameron Crowe thinks Lester Bangs would have to say about, you know, Roadies, because it would be savage. Yeah. There but, is a part of me that even sitting down with you and other comedians, like this with the microphones and the and the recorder, that feels like a next generation, almost famous to me. Me sitting down. Okay, I know I'm the enemy, but but I've been pursuing you for years. Please sit down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell yeah. me your story. And I'm sure. Yeah, uh, but uh, the difference is is that I'm not on the cover of Rolling Stone. And but I'm not 15. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? Are you? I acted, but aren't you? So, um, uh, yeah. so you went to see shows. Yeah, and 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 then I found myself at uh, Face Boys Open Mic Night at Surf Reality, which was a venue in Lower East Side. I've heard of Surf Reality, but I haven't heard of Face Boys. Face Boy was a guy. He's a guy. He's a guy named Frank Hall. Okay, and he was, in many ways, kind of the uh, how's the best way to say this? Um, David Koresh. Of the Lower East Side performance scene, like he that that sounds negative. I don't mean it to be negative, but he was really kind of a beacon of that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, him and, and Reverend Jen Miller, you know, were both people who, back when alternative comedy actually kind of meant something. And I, and, I, and I don't mean to be like, oh, fucking when rock and roll used to mean something, man. No, but at the time, alternative comedy. I mean, now when you think alternative comedy, you think, oh, somebody who's kind of nerdy and maybe has glasses and a hoodie or, or whatever but right. at the time it was alternative performance could be stand-up it could be dominatrixes i follow dominatrixes all the time you know you'd follow you'd get up at this open mic night and it would be somebody reading sort of anti-giuliani rants mm-hmm. followed by a dancer followed by a musician followed by somebody with a, a bullwhip up his ass you know maple thorpe style and then you'd get up and do your little stand-up act and I was by far the the most square person there. At least that's how it felt to me. But I really loved how just open ended it felt. It was it was a really nurturing place. And if I had started comedy in the comedy clubs, I probably would have quit pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, there was surf reality on Sundays and and collective unconscious at uh. Uh, Reverend Jen's anti-slam on Wednesdays at Collective Unconscious. How did doing shows like that uh, help you help you find your voice quicker than, say, going to a comedy club? Well, I, it's funny. I mean, 
I don't know anybody from my generation who thought about their voice at the time. You know, it, that's a very millennial. I mean, comedy professionals would always talk about finding your voice, or they say POV. Or... Yeah, but nobody at the nobody nobody at the sort of alt open mics. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is because most of the people that did those shows had their own voice because they were weirdos. A lot of them weren't particularly good. They were just very weird. And so having their own point of view was not the issue. Right. It was more like, can you do a six-minute set that doesn't sound like the rantings of an insane person? Um, but I've always bucked at that slightly and probably to my detriment, you know, where the idea when people use words like brand as a verb, you know, like – or, you know – they talk about networking. Like, I'm of that sort of '90s generation, that early '90s vibe of like to say you're networking. Ugh. Like, you can't. I can't think of anything more repulsive. And I understand the world is different now, right. but I still have a. I still have a mental block with that. You know, of of like, what's my brand, man? Ugh. Anytime somebody refers to their own brand, it makes me want to jump off a bridge. <laughs> And yet but, it's become much more acceptable. Well, it's become, it's not, that. it's, it's been absurd for you to not think about that. And I guess I, I understand that, but it's just one of those things. I just wasn't made for these times, <laughs> you know, that sort of vibe. I understand that I have lost this argument, but right. Technology has won. Yeah. I mean, whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes when I get into interviews like this, um, when I get into these interviews, sometimes I feel like I'm being very redundant and I'm saying the same things I've said a thousand times. And so I, I don't want to just fall into that lapse of being the old guy like, eh, these kids these days. Right. I don't think they're wrong. I just know it's not for me. It's a pair of shoes that just doesn't fit. Right. It's a paradigm shift and not everybody wants to. Yeah. And, and agrees with the shift. It, yeah. It just doesn't feel right. I mean, if you're making rocking chairs and then somebody comes out with a recliner or whatever, it's not all of a sudden, well, I'm going to start making recliners. Like, no, I make rocking chairs. That's what I do. And right. if that means that my career suffers as a result of that, it's like, I'm not going to start making recliners just for the hell of it, you know? <laughs> but, um, you said, uh, Jim Gaffigan was the first headliner. Yeah. When I, I, I didn't do the road at all, really, you know, because I started in the sort of alt scene. Yeah. How did you break out of that? To, you know, I, to be in the, Improv in West Palm. I got very lucky in the sense that uh, I was just doing shows around town, and I had done a little bit of road work, but nothing special. But I got Premium Blend, which at the t- you know for people who don't know, you know, was the Adam Devine's house party of its time. <laughs> you know, the sort of first credit for a lot of comedians. Right. You know, and it's still available on the Comedy Central app or yes. Hulu. Yes, I'm sure if you go dig through the County Central Archives. And from that, I got a manager. And from that, I started getting some road work. Okay. Um, but it was weird sometimes because I would go out and do the road. And the people I was headlining for had didn't have credits, but they had years of experience. Like, they were road dogs. Oh, right. You know what I mean? And I was kind of a guy who had about 14 solid minutes, but I had been on TV. Right. You know what I mean? And so... It was sometimes a slightly awkward situation. I remember. In 2002, you were also on Chappelle. Yeah, I think that one in 2003. 2003. Yeah, I think it came out in like, uh, I mean, I think we shot it at the end of 2002, but it actually aired in 2003. But, um, I remember once 
one of my first road gigs down somewhere in Jersey, bananas in New Jersey or something like that. And the headliner was this guy who did impressions. And, was, and before the show, the MC said to the, to the, the guy, he's like, Hey, what, what credits do you want me to say? He's like, Oh, you know, Leno, Letterman, Premium Blend, whatever. And I had just done Premium Blend the week before. I was like, Oh, I did, I just did Premium Blend. Like, which season were you on? And he's like, Oh, you actually did it? Oh, you take that one then. I'll take, I'll take the other ones. And it's like, Oh, is this what the road is? Just like, just say you were on stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, to a certain degree. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but what are credits? Yeah, I mean, you're. I mean, I, that's when when people ask me, like, what credits do you want me to say? I was. They're already. The people are already here. They're already in the room. Like, credits are great in terms of advertising for the show, but once you're in the show, right. What are they going to hear the wrong credit and leave? Just whatever. You may have seen him on TV, but he's here right now. Yeah, I love when people say like, "You've seen this guy on, uh, you know, whatever, uh, The Good Wife." It's like, may probably not. <laughs> you know, Hedberg had a joke about. That, that you were most likely, more likely to have seen him at the store. Yeah. <laughs> Not the comedy store, the store. Yeah. I, I just love the presumption. You've seen him on. <laughs> You're obsessed with television mm-hmm. and remember every bit part. That... Although Chappelle's show was a huge. Oh, I mean. You, how did you get cast on that? Was it also someone coming was... through looking for the whitest face? Kind of. It was know? mostly Neil Brennan. You know, Neil had moved to New York to start doing Chappelle show Mm -hmm. and i knew neil just as a guy from the scene and i knew that you know half-baked was you know i was a huge fan of half-baked and i was a huge fan of dave you know when i this is kind of a weird thing when i went to nyu uh the degree that dare not speak its name when, when i went to nyu the first week uh, my freshman year, we had a dorm field trip to the Boston Comedy Club, which was in West Village on West Third right. Street. Uh, so and, not far away. Yeah, <laughs> but I was totally Mr. Black Turtleneck, fake John Lennon glasses, <laughs> Morrissey listening. I hated stand-up comedy, hated it with a passion, and I sat there, arms folded, just the biggest twerp in the world. And there was one guy that made me laugh, one guy, and he was this kid who looked like he was 13 years old. And he was hilarious. And years later, it turned out that that was Dave Chappelle, you know, because he started, he's like a year older than I am, I think. And he had started stand up really young and right. he looked crazy young. So right. I, I thought he was just some kid they let in. And so it was really awesome. So I had kind of followed his career the whole way because I had remembered that first week at NYU seeing him. And so when I met Neil around town, I really did my best to not be that guy to, to sort of, be the star fucker guy perhaps to a fault because we got along pretty well immediately and i don't this is kind of weird to say but uh at one point he called me a couple times and he was like hey let's go out and like have lunch or something like that and i was so concerned about coming across like a star fucker that i didn't call him back and then i saw him and he was just like I get it. We're not friends like that. Sorry. Or whatever. And I was like, no, you know, <laughs> but just, just typical me in about a thousand ways. But Neil was the guy who said, Hey, you know, I'm working on the show with Dave and, and there's this part that we think you might be right for. And it felt very flattering until I read the script and I was like, Oh, this is what, Oh, I know the perfect guy <laughs> play this emasculated eunuch. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously. So I went, I, he got me the audition, okay. then I went and I auditioned for it. So when, when you were doing that and you had premium blend, what did you think 
that would lead into for a career? Or what did you hope at the time your career would be? Boy, I, you know, I wish I could say I have forethought like that, but I, I really don't. I, I have no idea. I, I can't even remember having any thoughts about the future. I've always felt just so incredibly lucky to get anything that it has prevented me from really doing a lot of forward thinking. And that's one of the things that's, it took me a long time. I'm, I'm 43 now and it's taken me a long time to realize that, oh, when things are happening for you, that's the time to be working even harder to make the next thing happen. Whereas I've always been like, Hey, I got something great. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then that ends and then it's, then you're sort of back to zero okay. again. You didn't think, Oh, I've got this. That means I'll get this and I'll get this. No, and this. not at all. I felt like I was perpetrating a huge fraud and that I was just lucky to be there. You know, is that how you felt with best week ever also? Yeah. To a that degree. was where, that's where you really kind of like enter more people's consciousness because well, that was a weekly certainly thing and you know your name is attached to yeah. it you're you're you are yourself on screen and uh i think that i had a slightly odd relationship with um with best week ever i got best week ever because years ago in 2001 i went on a vh1 game show and won a car uh it was a game what show, was that game show? it's called name that video Okay. And I was like a music video obsessive when I was a kid. And uh, and I won a car, and it was great. And people around, certain people, and this I, mean, I was still just an open micer, basically. And uh, But people started to know that I was kind of a trivia person. And so when they did this internal pilot for a, a new show they were trying called I Love the 80s, they had me in as just one of the nobodies to kind of just try out the format. And then when the show got picked up, they replaced all of us with, you know, celebrities or, you know, people who had some name recognition. But when they started Best Week Ever, they had remembered me from the I Love the 80s pilot, and they were really keen on having their own crew of new people. And so, I mean, I loved Best Week Ever, and I loved that I was able to write my own jokes for the most part, you know, or take jokes that I liked that other people had written and, and – uh but I never was a, a gossip guy. It was never my thing. Like, I didn't care about a lot of the stuff I was talking about. And so it was always slightly awkward for me because it, I was talking about a lot of things that I was not concerned about even in the slightest. And so when it ran its course, I was very relieved to no longer have to give a crap what Lindsay Lohan was doing on a day-to-day basis and things like that. I mean, I love popular culture in the sense that I'm an avid movie watcher and I'm a music obsessive and all those things. But, but that sort of gossip page element of celebrity, like I don't really care. Right. So you don't want to help. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't really able to, you're not a fan of the word viral. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I had opportunities or, you know, when, when best week ever was kind of at its hype, there were definitely opportunities that came along that if I had wanted that life, there was kind of a, a career that was waiting for me if I wanted it, and I just didn't want it. Like, Not that this would be a career, but I remember I got interviewed by this woman who was working on this secret show that she couldn't tell me about, but she was interested in me being a part of it. And then later, I found out that she was interviewing me to be one of those bullpen douchebags on the TMZ show. Oh. You know, and you, yeah. You, really? Yes, yes. I mean, by process of elimination, when I realized 
when I saw the show. I wonder she, it was a secret. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was like, ugh. I mean, I would genuinely kill myself if that was my life. Having to be that like blonde surfer douche who, you know, like, oh, I bumped into Ray Romano at the airport. Like, ugh. I've got an upskirt of Kim Kardashian. Yeah, just, and just that they all think they're so funny and, ugh. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of it is that I, I find LA to be just a very depressing place to me. And I don't mean that in the way that a lot of people, I love going to LA. Like I love visiting there, but man, you want to talk about a pair of shoes that doesn't fit. Like every time I go there, I just, this is just, Oh, I'm, this is not my life. This is not the life I want. I mean, I moved to New York because I wanted to live in New York. I had no, it was not a comedy decision. It was just a life decision. And so. I, anything that kind of feels too LA to me, I kind of have a gag reflex kick in. So how much of the new show, Black and White with Sherrod Small, how much of that is in response to the life you could have had? And this is, uh, this is what you really want to do. I don't know. It, that's a good question. I mean, I will say that I feel really, and Sherrod and I were talking about this a few days ago. I feel really fortunate that I've been able to kind of have a career and never live in LA. Like that is, that feels very fortunate to me. Although you did lose a bunch of weight as if you had moved out. <laughs> well, yes, that's, that is true. And I've gained about half of it back, but, um, it's, I mean, that was just a health, a life thing. You know, it had to happen, but, um, I just, I feel very lucky to have not had to go there and do that. And it's, it's nothing personal, and you know I don't want to sound like a complete liar. If someone had been waving a million dollar check, I'm sure I would have found a way to to love it. Uh, a lot of my friends who think they're going to hate L.A. they move out there and they blossom as human beings. You know, people who in New York were just miserable fucks, they move out to L.A. All of a sudden, they get married, they have kids, they're just enriched and have and successful. And so I don't want to sort of fall on that knee jerk thing of you know fuck L.A. But this is just where I feel myself and i feel very fortunate that we've been able to stay out here and i i hope that the character of the show reflects that i think it would be a very different show if it was shot somewhere else um but a lot of a lot of black and white came out of my experiences when i was on are we there yet you know we shot a hundred episodes of that and over the course of about not quite two years but it was a very intense period of time and being in the general minority, I mean, certainly minority in the cast, I was the only white regular cast member, but even the cast and even the crew and, and it was probably 65, 35 black, white. Okay. And it was very fascinating to me to be, to see that there was this world that I didn't know anything about and just certain references, certain things like all the black actors knew each other because they have this thing they call black Hollywood because they've all worked together. There's, you know, um, they've all done various of these, you know, shows like, uh, sisters or, you know, living single or whatever. They've all worked together in some capacity before. And, and just seeing how many simple little things were different among a group of black people communicating with each other, as opposed to one black person in a room full of white people, which is what I'm used to, you know? Um, and so a lot of the show kind of came out of that, of just that feeling of like, oh, we really are seeing things through two different sets of glasses. And generally what happens is that black people will want to talk about race and white people will not. Or a white person will say something stupid 
the world will come down on that person and then they immediately recoil into their shell and then quietly go vote for Trump, <laughs> you know, which is I, I'm of the opinion that it's like hang a lantern on your problem. Like, like, let's actually air it out. Like uh, one of the writers in the show came up with a phrase that I've always used to describe it. You know, it's breakdown, not takedown, that it's it's not meant to be kind of let's hang them high let's let's you know it's it's not a crusade like say a john stewart show would be you know which i love it or bill maher where it's like i'm going to take down the, the 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 big dogs it's more just about like all right let's sort of try to pick up that conversation where it usually stops where the awkwardness you know sets in and people just want to immediately kind of just go in their own directions like let's actually just sit and marinate in that awkward space Sherrod's kind of a perfect guy for that he is i mean it's great because he's more conservative than i am in many ways and so i think that makes a good mix in the sense that it's like i'm not up there trying to fight for the white race and he's not necessarily up there trying to fight for the black race but i know a world that he doesn't know and he knows a world that i don't know and so we can kind of commute communicate with each other in a in a more open way and i feel like then we could then go back to our own <laughs> crowds and be ambassadors but um and also he just makes me laugh the dude's always made me laugh and we just have a weird connection uh like we don't hang out a lot you know but we spend a lot of time together now obviously but we just there's something about when he and i are really locked in with each other it it feels challenging and fun and not too f- smart and not too dumb. Do you know what I mean? It's like right in that wheelhouse where I like. Oh, yeah. He likes to um, make references in his stand-up act and then go, I guess I was just for the top 2% of the room. <laughs> well, and th- you know, and that's the thing is like our stand-up could not be any more different. It, we could not be any more different on stage in terms of what we do. But Sherrod is one of those guys where he has an opinion on anything immediately. And he's able to access it and express it in a way that's funny and not what you'd expect. You know, I tend to be the kind of guy who's like, all right, well, let me think about this. Let me, let me really drill down and figure out what my point of view is on this and what's my opinion. I don't want to make sure I stress this perfectly. And meanwhile, Shiraz just kind of like out there, mm-hmm. you know, he's already planted this flag. And, <laughs> and I, I feel like in, in many ways, he and I make up for each other's flaws. Like he's good at the things that I'm bad at. And, and like if you put the two of us together, we make one solid person like he always says like yeah let's voltron this shit mm. <laughs> you know which is sort of how we're looking at it uh what's the uh what's the best or kind of longest lasting advice that's that keeps you going um you're never as good as your best night and you're never as bad as your worst you know that it's 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 more about batting average than it is i mean and if you're not bombing at least once a month, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> like, I, I I don't, I'm not one of those people who like feels like I have to kill every time. Sorry, I'm just not. And <laughs> I I find those people who feel like they have to kill every time, they're relying on, I don't know, tropes and things like. The, the, well, it, that's because, where you get hacked. Yeah, and I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to say that because, because I think Sherrod would probably feel very differently than me. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of people, they really feel like, and even that you could say is a form of white privilege. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of black comics, they go out and they feel like they have to kill every time because it's like, this isn't fucking around for them. Do you know what I mean? Like they've got to, they've got to succeed. They have to excel and they have to do better. Whereas, you know, for me, it's, it's like, oh, well, I just want to explore an idea for a while and, 
you know, if the audience doesn't get it, fuck them. Cause, it's you know. the art. Yeah, you, you know what I mean? Like, even that is sort of a weird form of, that, that's, there have been a lot of articles recently about the lack of diversity in the improv world. It's like, well, yeah, because most, you know, lower income people, many of whom are people of color, they don't have four years to fucking make no money and do your stupid levels. And then odd, and then five years later, I mean, like the whole, the whole model of something like a, an improv school and mm-hmm. is marinating. Like just be here for a few years, make connections, work for free. Network. Yeah, network. And then overnight you're going to be on a TV show. Right. Whereas, you know, I think for a lot of stand-ups, it's more about hustling. It's like working, you know, it's not a coincidence to me that Stand up, say working together. I worked with that guy, and improv people say, "Oh, I played with him once." <laughs> it's a it's a completely different mindset. But. So on the flip side, if someone brand new, uh, aspiring comedian, actor, writer, asks you for advice, what's the first thing you say? I mean, I I, Other I, than I go do away. I why well, <laughs> I do say that about you're never as good as your best night, never bad as your worst, because I think it that is. Uh, an important thing to remember is because to not try to not get too high or too low because that first few years, every time you have a good set, you think you're on the rocket ride to stardom. And every time you eat it, you think it's your complete fraud. And honestly, if you can sort of chart some progress from year to year, I, I, and I also think that once a year you should sit down and you should ask yourself, am I better than I was a year ago? And am I enjoying this? Do I enjoy this? Or am I just doing this because I don't want to quit because I feel like I've put all this effort into this? Because I think I know a lot of people that waste some prime years of their lives because they think that they're stand-up comedians and that they have to be stand-up comedians because they've invested so much in it. And then, you know... Oh, you're not giving me advice right now. <laughs> no, but I feel like I've been doing this for a long time. No, but, oh, I do ask myself, I do ask myself that question though every year. Like when my birthday, when the anniversary of starting the website comes around, I go, mm-hmm. all right, what am I doing with this? Yeah. And is this, and honestly, is this though, what I'm doing? But if the answer is, well, there's nothing else I want to be doing more, fine. Right. But it's like, if there's anything else, I always tell comedians, like, you know, it's like, if there's anything else you enjoy as much as comedy, do that. <laughs> because this won't make the rest of your life better. <laughs> uh, well, you made, uh, you I made say, the, that's you made... not going to make your dad love you. Mm-hmm. Comedy is not going to make your dad love you. It's not going to, make that girl from high school not have turned you down for the prom. None of those things. And if you're expecting comedy to do that for you, you're going to be a very sad 50-year-old one day. Yeah. Take that, people on Facebook. (laughs) Well, Christian, um, thanks for for, uh, making my day brighter. And uh, (laughs) thanks for not actually killing me in the kill room. Oh, I'm sorry. Appreciate it. Hey, the night is young. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
things first. 